Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Frog Snacks Podcast. It is episode 163. It is I, Snacks, with me as always, is my loyal and faithful co-host, Frog. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. So, today's episode, uh, I think it's going to be a little bit of a fun one, a little bit of a freewheeling, a little bit of freewheeling episode. Um, we came up with this topic, uh, like last week, I think, um, yeah. just kind of offhanded, uh, when we were talking about, uh, we were going through a lot of the new stuff that we saw at E3 and we noticed a little bit of a, a pattern, I guess, in kind of like recurring, uh, settings in games. So we said, well, you know, I think that this is a topic that we haven't covered. I think there's probably a lot to say and a lot to, uh, you know, patterns that we've noticed that we can talk about and also stuff that we would like to see that we don't get to see normally. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. So do you remember exactly what title was, uh, brought up that kind of like spurred this whole thing? Assassin's Creed, Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Right. Okay. And I believe that we started that, I mean, I can, I can talk about that right now, which is that since Assassin's Creed Odyssey, for those that don't know, is going to be a, a take a, a trip, I should say, into ancient Greece, uh, which is, I think, a pretty underexplored like, space and time for gaming. Uh, I can't think of any other game, at least any other game that people want to talk about <laughs> that takes place in... <laughs> that takes place in that era. Because I'm you? saying there are plenty of games that people don't want to talk about that happen in that era, right? Oh, no doubt. There are a ton, no right? I mean, also the trash that, you know... Right, well, I mean, let's not be hasty. I'm not saying trash. I'm saying, you know, stuff that's been... I would say... I would say... I will say this about ancient Greece, right, as a setting. I think that ancient Greece has, as a setting, been spread like kind of kind of like uh seasoned uh like seasoned throughout gaming like i don't want to say it's been seasoned liberally with this setting but i think if you go ahead like the mini ancient grease salt shaker and just you know throw a little dash on the whole plate yes it's been it's been it's been seasoned throughout but not liberally right like it's not it's not it's not taking the place of like paprika, you know what I mean? But it's in there, right? But I'm That's saying, why I say salt. I'm, I'm saying that if you're looking at like Age of Mythology, right? Ancient Greece, Age of Mythology series from the PC era. You got your, uh, you got Gladius, that PS2 game that I talked about that one time where I spent the whole episode talking about it because I spent my entire Thanksgiving break just like at my aunt's house, like, playing it in her basement because that was, was, like, the only thing that she had. Oh, I and, thought that was an ancient Rome game, but okay, yeah. Um, you know what? It's kind of unambiguous. And I, mm. and I think that you're... I think that I might be conflating ancient Rome and ancient Greece because I do think that we probably see a lot more ancient Rome than ancient Greece. We definitely... That is absolutely true. But it also might be a little more fresh in my mind because I'm... Because God of War is a thing. And the first three God of War games took place in ancient Greece, right? It was the whole thing was just Greek mythology. Just slicing and dicing your way through Greek mythology. And I'm currently playing God of War 3. 
because it's been in the backlog for a while. But uh, and not the new one. Not the new oh, one. Did we talk about this too? Because I thought you did. You not say that you wanted to get like a little get your feet wet in that series again before playing a new one, or am I making that up? Uh, you got a part right. I, I had played one and two, but I never played three, and I wanted to play three before I played the reboot. Gotcha. So I'm playing three now, um, but I've been told that like it, it's enough. Of, it's a healthy enough reboot where you don't really need to like have played the first three, but the first three basically are immediately sequential. Like the third one begins immediately after the second one ends. Right. So, um, but I guess the third one is far enough removed and has a different setting, which is a setting we'll get to. Right. Which is like Viking shit. But yeah, I think, yeah. Okay. So, so, okay. Ancient Greece is going to be, uh, Assassin's, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, right? Mm-hmm. You got the God of War series, you got Age of Mythology, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, I guess every other one that I could think of is, is ancient Rome. Yeah. Rome, Rome is such an, I don't know if even ancient Rome is that well explored, but it's definitely more explored than ancient Greece, and I think that has to do with um, the, the warrior men stories and mentality that is often associated with ancient Rome. You know, obviously everybody's very attracted to the idea of the Colosseum and the brutality and awful things that went down there, right. and known warlike mentality of uh, that period in general, right? I mean, yeah, you had the whole Athens-Sparta thing going on in ancient Greece, but ancient Greece is known for uh, being a time of study and, and learning more than a time of warfare, whether that's an accurate perception for people to have or not. Right. I think there's, yeah, you're right. I think that there's like a much more academic tint to ancient Greece. And I think part of that is because like of what has survived. Because I mean, when I think of ancient Greece, right, I think of, you know, like, the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? I think of right. that movie Troy with Brad Pitt from like 2002. Great movie. Right. <laughs> right. And I think of 300. That was a deep. Of course. Right? Of course. But like but even even 300 is completely based off of one battle, right? The Battle of Thermopylae. So, right. we're really we're really like built this entire, you know, modern mythology off of this this relatively short-lived city-state that fought in one battle that people remember and that's it the rest of it is the rest of it is you know you're you're talking about uh advances in like politics and medicine and philosophy and uh i guess i guess troy and that's it right <laughs> so there's like two much. there's like two battles there's like two battles that i come up with with rome not only you're talking about a much like longer period of time, you're basically talking from like realistically, you're you're talking about like um, like the end of the Roman Republic to the formation of the Roman Empire. So like I don't know, maybe like 150 BC to about 380. So you're you're talking about you know 500 years about. And not only are you talking about a much longer period of time, but you're talking about a an empire that is 
responsible for the formation of modern day Europe and the Middle East and North Africa in much the same way as the, the like Mongol empire under Genghis Khan is responsible for a lot of the political boundaries of Asia. Right. So you're talking about something that's more important in like a tangible sense and also like far more warfare. We're talking about like, like basically the, the interstate highway system, but for troops that the Romans built. And a lot of those roads still exist. A lot of the political boundaries still exist. A lot of the names still exist. I was just telling somebody earlier, uh, the country Belgium, right? Uh, Belgium is a, is a Latin word for the tribe that existed in what is present day, like Belgium, Netherlands, right? So like they're the, the like footprint of, of the Roman empire physically can still be felt today. And I think that that's what makes it so interesting is that there, there is a lot of like, there are so many themes that can be explored in that setting because not only you're talking about, sure, the Colosseum and this like, um, this idea of this, you know, this like archetypical, uh, centurion figure with like the, with like the fanned helmet and the, and the like plated chest guard and, you know, you're in charge of the troops and you're like an officer and shit. Like there's, there's a much there's a much clearer idea of what warfare looked like in Roman times, whether, whether it was recreational or political than there is for Greece. The only, the only military concept I can think of in, in like Greek times is like the trireme and like the phalanx, right? So like a dude with a spear on a boat and like, you can only show this off a couple of times before you're like, okay, uh, we have to like get creative here without it, but basically without it turning into a museum. Right. Well, see, let's think about something else. If I shift the conversation in a certain way, right? Sure. Uh, the fact that we're focused so much on the war side of things shows a little bit of bias on our part, right? Because, naturally um or maybe we shouldn't say naturally but the tendency among uh people when thinking about certainly where to set things like big budget games because i presume we're mostly talking about you know things with a budget Mm -hmm. uh the, the bias is to think about things with exciting combat mechanics but uh especially as we are as you know more experienced players trying to encourage the industry to have games that go beyond merely having exciting war stories to tell, it would be worth thinking about, well, what kind of other things went down in these different eras, right? And I think that's actually what Ubisoft may be going for, at least a certain degree with Odyssey, Mm -hmm. is to kind of explore more of the, okay, this is not going to be necessarily, there's going to be naval battles and stuff like that in that game, but... Um, I hope that they're going to take some of the tactics that they took, like with Origins. Well, Origins, I don't know if you heard, they actually, after the game came out, introduced like a straight up, I don't know if they use the word museum mode, but a straight up like educational mode because they put so much time and research into building out the world of, you know, ancient Egypt uh, that they actually did have a mode where you could just kind of tour and it gives you like interesting facts about all the things you're seeing. That is cool. Uh, and that kind of reminds me of the, uh, 
I don't know what they called it, but a Metal Gear Solid 4, where it was basically like the gun museum. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, but like, you know, like, uh, like Kojima made it, you know, as educational as you could, right? With, with that Mm -hmm. little like thing that they had and they had the old, uh, they had the old, like, uh, like matchlock rifle from the 1600s or whatever that you could get in that game. Yeah, that game had some, among the many batshit things in that game, that was one of them. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But I think, okay, so so what you're saying about Odyssey is is uh, good and important because you're right. I think, that the, I think that this is, it's the easiest way to do it without it seeming like a documentary is for you to, right. is for you to just focus on combat. And I think what... Right what God of War does, at least one through three, and, like, the more I'm playing God of War, the more I'm appreciating it as a as a series in general. Because what God of War 3 did was basically, you know, eschew everything that we knew about what combat was like in ancient Greece and basically kept the mythology, right, created their own mythological uh, character... And, like, in a very, very loose sense, taught you Greek mythology and let you just destroy it. Like, it would, it, like, you, there's, there's, I don't, I'm not learning anything about ancient Greece while playing this game. None. Zero. Right. right? All they did was give Kratos a backstory that connected him to all the gods in Mount Olympus and shit, right? And right. and let them loose. But as you encounter all of these characters, you know you you get like a you get like a crash course in who they are and what their deal is, right? And like uh, even like God of War three has this um has this like blacksmith character that's sort of like and I, I did not know who this person was and I had to look them up, but it was uh, basically like the a like a like an enslaved blacksmith to Mount Olympus, and I was like, okay, like they're they they clearly like did research, and they were and they were they are teaching it to me in like the most in the in like the crashiest kind of way. Like they're they're not it's not a game that is that is steeped that is steeped itself in history to the point where you're playing a historical simulator. Because the other thing that I wanted to talk about was. Like what you said were with the historical mode with Odyssey is that um you know basically you mean origins. Ca- huh you mean origins but yeah, yeah with origins is 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 kind of like the historical um i'm sorry with with like um a lot of the paradox games right so mm. paradox does these games specifically Crusader kings and Europa Universalis. But essentially, they they tackle such large swaths of history, right? Like you know, three hundred years spans something like that, and they give you a snapshot of what the world looked like, and you can kind of play out the next couple centuries as whichever you know uh, extant uh, faction or, or kingdom or duchy or whatever. And Crusader Kings is so interesting because. Despite its name, 
you can spend the entire time not leaving the uh, the British Isles, right? And what you have is right. is this this period of time between like 900 and 1200 AD where you can't really name much that went on off the top of your head other than like maybe the, the like, um, like the battle of Hastings or like the Norman conquest or whatever. But I don't know what happened during it, but here it is this, it is this setting that is not based off of a specific event, right. But a very poorly known era, probably outside of England that, that can, that is so uh, eloquently recreated that you can't really, you know, that, that is, that the game makes it actively difficult for you to branch out of that, right? Like if you were, I, back when I used to play a lot of European Universalis and I would do like, uh, like game stories, um, you know, there were some things that were so impossible that would have been so historically um, improbable that the game makes it that much harder for you to do. And then there are some things that actually ended up happening for, for like convenience or, or political reasons historically. So, you you know, they're easier to accomplish. Like it's easier to keep, um, the Northern part of Italy Catholic, even after the, the Protestant reformation, right? Because this is what happened. But if you were to try to convert, the entirety of the Italian peninsula to Sunni Islam before the, before the year 1750, right? You're not going to be able to do it. Like you can try, but it's not going to work. Right. So there, there, there are so many obstacles. You, you haven't encountered it. You don't, you don't have, you basically, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that there are workarounds to this, um, this like combat centric, uh, pre-modern, um, pool of candidates that we have built for ourselves, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, um, stuff like that. Right. Anything of this era is, you're right, is like, uh, alarmingly combat based with the exception of very few. And I'm glad that a more accessible title like Assassin's Creed did something like that and showed you like, Hey, this is what this was like at this time. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the answer is also just, you know, a little bit more creativity in general. But again, once you start talking about games of budgets, it's hard to do things that are too off the wall you know, we're in a time now where people are spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars making games, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and your your risk of failure is pretty damn high. So, you to get too crazy in terms of concept, where a, a, ma- a critical mass of people might not immediately connect is is a dangerous thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can understand why developers tend to go back to the same wells over and over. Sure. But I think that it is very, very possible. I think we'll start to see more of this over time um, where there's going to be more experimentation, especially because even as I say all that, right, even as I say that there's this huge competitive pressure 
and and the risk of failure is so high and so much money's being thrown around it also remains the case that there's so many things vying for a consumer's attention so while it is true that there's a, a, a high amount of risk aversion on the part of you know big publishers it also remains the case that you have to make a game that actually catches people's eyeballs because there's a gajillion things that they could be looking at other than your game. Okay, what? We're at a point where it's like, where, why should I care? <laughs> I have a number of hours in the day. Like, you need to wow me to get me to care. Right. All the more so because we're in this games as a service era, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not even like, okay, even if I ignored your game today, I might come back tomorrow. No, I might ignore your game and that's going to be it. Yeah. Because I have my one or two or three service joints that I'm, I'm dealing with. So that being said, why don't we consider some errors that are, again, underexplored that might be worth exploring in the confines of, you know, something we might see from the likes of a, an EA or a Ubisoft or whoever. Um, I mean, the fact that Red Dead Redemption exists is a pretty interesting example, right? It remains the only old Western game franchise out there. I mean, yeah, yeah it was Call of Juarez, but nobody gives a shit about that. So, as far as things that are relevant right now, it's it's Red Dead. Yeah, there right? was a little there was a little bit of a push in like the the end of uh, like the end of the PS2 Xbox era and the beginning of the 360 PS3 era, where it was like you mean Gun? Yeah, they had Gun, they had Call of Juarez, they had. Um, uh, they and then and then one when the AAA developers were kind of like over it, they had um, they had like the indie space takeover. They had like Westeros and and like that one. Um, uh, they had that one like uh, tactical RPG game, like Double Barreled or some shit that was like took place in like an old West town. I don't remember this. Yeah, I, I don't have my Steam open, but that's it. it I ha- I own the game. But um, and then if they, we really wanted to go down the rabbit hole, there's also Wild Arms. Oh my god, though that's yeah, a that's a stretch. That's a stretch because there was this kind of like so I I'm like now flabbergasted that we've never spoken about Wild Arms because I love Wild Arms. I've never actually played any of them. So okay, okay. Wild Arms. Let me out myself as a poser. I, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say this. I played. Okay, I think I think there are five. Wild Arms four is an excellent JRPG. Um, right. I played the first one and the second one, and they kind of haven't aged that well. I never played the third one, but four is good. I I haven't played it in a while, and maybe it also didn't age well. But I remember being the most impressed with four. And I four is the first PS2 one, no? I believe four is the first PS2 title. If not, it's like a four-disc PS1 joint. But I'm pretty sure it was PS3. <clears throat> um, but Wild Arms is different because Wild Arms is kind of like this, like, it has this Old West aesthetic, but it has this also, like, it would be like, <sighs> Wild Arms is super unique. And this is, I think, a good segue into the thing that I wanted to talk about, which is, you know, people who are like a lot of genres who are taking this like alternate history approach where it's not quite like 
it's like present day if like X, Y, or Z happened or if it, or it's like the very near future if, you know, a uh, catastrophic event A, B, or C happens. But Wild Arms was, was it, it, it built itself as a Wild West themed um, JRPG, but it had this, it had this like cyber futurism aspect to it as well, where you would be like, you'd have like a, a character with, that was like a cowboy essentially, but then you would end up in like this, like this, like future lab with, with like green test tubes and stuff. And it was like, <laughs> and also there was magic, you know? So it was, it was almost like, if they, it was like if steampunk and cyberpunk and Red Dead Redemption all were fighting to get your attention. Like that's what Wild Arms was. It was super unique. I feel like that's an, that's the kind of thing I'd like to see more of actually. Me too. Because that's part of what makes games so interesting, right? Uh, there's been plenty of movies that have attempted like this kind of era crossing, you know, world crossing type of thing. Yeah. But typically, (laughs) yeah, I was going to say typically ends up being like these schlocky movies, like a a wild, wild west that end up appealing to nobody. Yeah. But within the context of the game, usually you just end up with something. uh, If the game mechanics themselves have been sufficiently thought through, you just end up with something that's cool and interesting and new, right? Yeah, well, um, I definitely didn't think Wild Arms was like dumb for trying. I thought it. I thought it translated pretty well. It was just. It was just unique enough for me to pay attention without being shocky, like you said. Yeah, and I mean, in the, this current day and era, I think that's the kind of thing. Like, if they were to actually, I do believe there's going to be new Wild Arms soon. But don't hold me to that. I believe I saw something news about that. But. Um, assuming they wanted to do like a bu- big budget reboot, I and you really wanted to like blow that concept out. I think that you could make something that would be very attractive to a a, a fairly sizable audience. You know, mm-hmm. you know, a kind of an open world game with the trimmings of you know the Wild West as a I guess overall aesthetic, but having just beneath that surface the weird-ass sci-fi, I think that'd be crazy. And I think that'd pull a lot of people in. Especially because, again, it's it's an export... That would be like an exploration-type game. You know, in, in a different way, another JRPG we can bring in uh, that kind of takes the opposite approach is Star Ocean, right? Mm-hmm. So Star Ocean, the whole aesthetic and, you know, ostensible purpose of the game is that you're out among the stars and whatever... But for the most part, you're actually just, like, schlepping through all these, like, backwater planets you know, with your sword in tow, and it's pretty typical in that regard. Uh, this is not to shit on Star Ocean, because uh, at least two and part of three, which is what I've played, uh, are pretty damn good games. But they, in a, in a certain sense, it can be said that they kind of, um, they kind of pull the wool over your eyes. Because if you come in expecting Star Wars, you're damn sure not getting that. Right, <laughs> right, right. It's got it's got a little bit more of like a Japanese fantasy type type tinge to it. Yeah, right? 
not even Japanese, maybe the mechanics, sure, but it's more of like the straight fantasy because, like I said, you straight up go down on, you know, there'll be like a setup that is the high-tech wild sci-fi, and then next thing you know, you're in some random-ass town, you know, and, and it would be indistinguishable from, let's say, a Tales game. Yeah, okay. And I, I, you know, and that's the other thing is that, like, like I, I feel like there are a lot of fantasy tropes that could be superimposed onto things that aren't traditionally fantasy environments that would create for a very interesting setting. Like, like the, like this, uh, like I think Mass Effect basically does this, right? Where Mm. it's high fantasy in a lot of very subtle ways, but it's outer space. So it doesn't feel like one, but if you replaced the Krogans and the uh, other races with like elves and dwarves and you put mm-hmm. it in some uh, veil with a babbling brook, right? <laughs> you're, basically, right. You're, you're basically doing high fantasy, right? It's, it's reskinned high fantasy with – all the political intrigue and the and the, the the warring races and the one races got the you know like the Salarians and the Krogan got like their beef and everything and like this is you know this is this is uh, this is political fantasy it's political high fantasy but it's reskinned for outer space and I think that people could try this and get away with it with other settings right like. You would have to, but you would have to be careful because if you if you tried the same thing and went backwards, right, to like Roman or Greek times, you basically just end up with mythology, right? So it would have to be an unexplored place, and I think that there are a lot of places you could do it, right? Not even not even actual historical events or places, but even like you know, aesthetically a certain time and place. Like the Witcher series, right, is aesthetically like the late Middle Ages in England, right? Right. But it's all, it's high, it's high fantasy, right? And you've got a very unique story about, you know, a, a witch hunter, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it's high fantasy and it's, yeah, the Witcher's kind of a little bit, now you mentioned it, is a little bit of a blend of like that, I guess, that kind of Lord of the Rings-ish mm-hmm. style, um, but also with a much healthier dollop of the supernatural on top. So the which su- is obviously, yeah. obviously Lord of the Rings had supernatural shit in it too, yes, but I mean like straight up, you know, the fact that you're hunting down uh, rates and things of this nature. Yeah, and I think that the supernatural thing is like can be, but here's a, it, it's it's another thing. So like if you if you take this high fantasy thing and then you superimpose the supernatural onto it, and then you superimpose all of that onto a setting that people haven't seen those attributes sewed into, mm-hmm. then then you have something really special, and I think that that's. You know, I think Mass Effect had all of those things, right? Neo was a great action game because you never once killed another human, right? It was all demons and stuff. And I think it right. was and like it was it was very heavily 
um, influenced by Japanese mythology. But it was really like – it was just really a supernatural tale uh, superimposed on feudal Japan, right? Right. Uh, it had this whole like alchemy aspect. But they also took real historical figures like the, uh, like the Black Samurai and, and Edward Kelly, right? These were real people and they basically said, okay, what were these people doing at this time? They were – uh, basically trying to figure out how magic worked. And they also were highly superstitious and believed in demons and stuff. Let's make a game assuming that they were all correct and successful. Right. See, that's another avenue that's pretty interesting, right? Like just blowing out the idea of actual people, but then as you said, taking it to a level to say, well, what if this actually was like legit? Yeah. And that's, that's such a, that's such an interesting Tinge to take because if you make Neo and it's not based on anything, then all you have is weird fiction, right? And then everybody looks at it and says it's either either you know uh, Kafka esque or Lovecraftian, right? And then you say, well, perhaps, but they actually you know used this as the basis of their mythology, and then it becomes far more interesting because you're making a game that is like this, this like fugue state of like general mythical consensus of a time and a place. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think that one of the things that makes, that makes this whole weird fiction thing so interesting is that it is very like people, uh, people criticize it for being derivative, but it's, it's ultimately not, based on anything historical ever. Right. Right. And I think that you can do that, but then it has to be done really, really, really well. Otherwise you get accused of, of like plagiarism essentially. Right. So absolutely. So what you, what, if you can't do that really well, there are plenty of extant, uh, bits of lore and extant bits of mythology and mysticism that have never really been explored outside of, you know, the, the realm of origin. Um, but then again, you know, there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of instances of it that, that basically amount to paying homage, right? Like, um, one of my favorite things is, uh, the Pokemon Gollum. Right? Right. Or golem. Uh, a, a golem is a thing. Right? Right. But it's like, uh, it's basically like ancient, it's like ancient Hebrew mythology of, of like a, uh, like a construct, like a man-made construct made out of clay. Right? And they, mm-hmm. they made a ground type Pokemon and named it golem. Right? And it's just like, it's homage. Right. So there, there are a lot of different like traps you can fall into, I guess is my point where if you're, you know, you're, you, you either, the safest route is, is to explore a set of mythology that hasn't been explored and, and do it in a, in a gameplay type that hasn't been done yet. Like, like the way Neo did or yeah. No, I was going to say that, 
going on a style that kind of Neo did, right? Uh, where you takes existing historical figures and then, you know, plays of that. You know what studio's really good at doing that? Omega Force. I am glad you brought them up. Because... Mm-hmm. Our boys, the Dynasty Warrior guys. So the Dynasty Warrior guys... Literally, the, all of the Warriors games that are their own anyway. The, uh, Samurai Warriors, Dynasty Warriors, and Warriors Orochi. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them are literally just... Let's find every historical figure from Japan and China and make them kill thousands of people with the stroke of a with the press of a button. Yeah, and not not only the Warriors series, but uh, Kessen and the Romance of the Three Kingdoms series is all Omega Force right. as well. And this is all based off of historical China and Japan. And done right. and and done you know, in an exaggerated but accurate way, right? Mm-hmm. Very um, exaggerated. Let's not mince words there. No, yes. sure, but, but Ulti- you know... Uh, ultimately ro- true to the stories that they tell. Yeah, I mean, Romance of the Three Kingdoms is, is basically what Paradox does with Europe, but does it with, you know, uh, like a 150-year span in ancient, right. ancient China. Right. This is, you know, they're 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 taking like actual Chinese history and they're they're making a game out of it, like a historical simulator out of it, where that you can bend to your own will with varying degrees of difficulty. And this is this is really cool. But yeah, Omega Force basically does the same thing. Where they're like, oh, what if like, uh, you know, this ancient Chinese general. Um, what if you could play as him and then what if he also had like super saiyan mode and also could <laughs> and also could like you know shoot a fireball because they yeah. because they they have characters who you know historically were labeled as say um strategists or alchemists right and instead of being like a warrior like quote unquote warrior and giving them a sword They'll give them like a book and they'll throw pages at people or they'll shoot fireballs or something that's more akin to what they're what they were described as historically. When in actuality they were probably just like a political advisor, but they they've they've given them this new life by superimposing the supernatural onto extant, like real documented Chinese history. And this How is How do these people feel to know that they <laughs> hey, bro! You are a librarian. Did you know that five thousand years later, uh, you are now a character in a game that kills thousands of people by throwing book pages at them? Yeah, and and Juje Liang is like, good. I'm glad my legacy is being kept in good hands. <laughs> Thank you, Omega Force. Thank you. <laughs> they, they do a great Twitter post about it. It's great. Yeah. But this could be, you know, this could be explored without seeming derivative because there's there's so much variance in documented history. Like you could go to, you could go to ancient England and and do some like, do some stuff with like uh, like the Pictish tribes and the Vikings and the and the and the Romans like all kind of like clashing for space on this island with like native Britons and and like you could throw like. Bodica in the mix and like have all this stuff 
and it's been done before with ancient China, but you have a brand new game. You have a brand new idea and it's, and it's, it feels different enough for nobody to call it derivative as long as the mechanics are, you know, unique enough. Right. I would like to see, and there's been, I, I can think of at least one, maybe two games that kind of explore this, but, um, to see something that I guess builds on like the traditions and or the supernatural stories from let's say Native American tribes, right? Yeah, they had, go, um, there's a lot of really cool mythology and you know Native American history. There's a ton. Um, the the rec- the most recent example would be that uh, that indie game that came out for the Switch, Malacca. That was about. Um, oh yeah, I forgot about that. I was even thinking about uh, there was a game I believe it's called Never Alone. That also kind of went yeah, down. Yeah, that, that was like uh, Inuit mythology, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then there was, um, but yeah, Malacca was like, uh, I don't want to say Aztec, but like some some native northern Mexican tribe that uh, was real and it is was and is real, and they they made a game out of that mythology, and and let's not you know let's not ignore let's not ignore the entire African continent either, right? Like, there's a ton going on I there. was, I was thinking about that, and I, I, I noticed that that's very underexplored, mm-hmm. but I figured that's because of all the uh, hot-button social issues that could potentially be... There's, there's so many third rails uh, that a team could potentially get involved with, or start. Right, right. That I think that's probably why nobody with a budget was is going to was going to try. There was that action indie game. I believe it's called Orion mm-hmm. uh, with an AU. Uh, that was like I played a little bit. It was okay, but um, that was the only thing I've seen that like even attempted to kind of present a story that had some like African traditions in it. Sure. Yeah, and it's and it's and it's a shame, right? Because we're we're left with in the general American conscious, right? Only a handful of national histories, right? Uh, right? But even our own, right? Like, I can't think of a game that took place during the American Revolution. That was another one I was thinking of. Well, there is one, which brings us full circle, Assassin's Creed Three. Okay, yes, that's true. That's true. So Assassin's Creed is really jumping all over the place and, like, we could always look to them as the scapegoat and be like, oh, well, Assassin's Creed did it, so it's been covered. But if you think about all of the games that have covered, like, ancient Japan or ancient China or ancient Rome, right, or even just the last hundred years, like, how many World War II games have there been, right? How many modern warfare games have there been? So, you know, we're... Yes? I was amusing myself because I'm like, when Activision runs out of ideas for Duty franchise, we're going to see Call of Duty Caveman Warfare. <laughs> well, I think, like... And everybody's going to have all the full-out, like, modern weaponry, but you'll inexplicably be a caveman. Well, we had... I mean, listen, they basically did that. DICE basically did that with, with Battlefield 1, right? Like, World War One was seen like, I, I think was probably not explored the way it should have been because of how archaic everything seemed to be. Like, 
a lot of the right. technology that was only that was that was nascent fledgling to put it lightly um right. during world war 1 became you know uh usable on a much more streamlined scale by world war 2 so world war 2 became like the heavily favored of the two conflicts in terms of depiction in interactive media but World War One, when done correctly, as we've seen, can be done really well. And then it's like, well, at what point do we say that – do we stop using that excuse if we can say that, you know, planes which were barely flying, like these wooden frame things where they didn't even come up with like the reciprocating uh, like machine gun until the end of the war where like you ran the risk of shooting your own propeller off with the machine gun that was right. mounted on the front of your plane because it wasn't synchronized with the blades of the, of the engine until later, right? Like, uh, rifles that were only very recently had been rifled, uh, as, as opposed to smoothbore where like bullets were being used probably only not, not for the first time, but you know, only for the past like 40 or so years, uh, you know, trench trench warfare was being um, was like undermining every military tactic that had been used since the ancient Greeks, and is now and is now just like you know resulted in this like long sluggish you know uh, horrifying stalemate for for years and years and years. Right, like this isn't fun. Right. <laughs> it's like it became, it, you know, we didn't see like this large modern shift in how war was conducted until World War Two. So we saw like, OK, World War Two, fine. Like this is where it started to like make sense a little bit. We'll do it. And it was also like a fairly conflict free, you know, war. We've got a, a very obvious like good, good guys and bad guys here. But, you know, you could, you know, once once you've espoused the myth that you can't do what you did with like any of the World War II Call of Duty games with anything prior to that, right? Once that myth has been debunked and it has been, how much further back can you go? Can you make a uh, like a like a like a French and Indian War, right? And basically go over the entire like. Uh, brand new United States and do like the battle of new Orleans with like a bunch of muskets and stuff. That'd be dope. Like if, if they could do it with world war one, why can't they do it with the French American war or with the French and Indian war? Why can't they do it with, um, why can't they do it with the civil war? Why can't they do it with, I mean, and yeah, you're talking about like the same pratfalls as like, and third rails is like something that would have taken place in, in African mythology. Right. Uh, but you know, there, there are definitely like battles between ancient times and modern times that haven't been explored in a video game sense because it was, it was deemed to be impossible to recreate. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I mean, this conversation has kind of made me realize that, as you said, uh, there's a lot of unexplored territory, but like I came into this thinking more about just different points in time and to your point, there are still plenty of points in time that we can have fun in, but I'm actually more interested now in just like the alternate history ways we can play with things or the things we were talking about, like with wild arms where, um, 
we can play around with different kinds of uh, fusions of historical time periods and eras and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but, but either way, I think it's safe to say that there's a lot of unexplored creative territory when it comes to setting. And uh, hopefully we'll get more. I think we will get more of that as time goes on because, like I said, the competitive situation is such that everybody's going to have to pull out the stops to make something that's going to be attractive to people over a long haul. Yeah. So we'll see, I guess. But um, either way, it's going to be really fascinating. Yeah, it's it's gonna be good. I'm really looking forward to this new wave of of cyberpunk games that are coming out. This like dystopian, um, like like neon drenched type of thing that's going on. Like obviously we've got Cyberpunk 2077, but then there's like Black Future '88, right? Which was right. that? Uh, which I I believe I brought up during the Paxi's debrief episode. And, I think so. And uh, Kotaku, I think, just did a feature on it. Um. And then there was uh, there was that game Ruiner that I think Devolver Digital did. Um, yep. Mm-hmm. This is this is cool, especially because I think because I think it is it does two things, you know. And I think this is another good thing, like that setting should do, is that it it gives you it gives you something to compare it to, like. With, like, with these cyberpunk games, right? I think that we're going to see a lot of. I think that we are going to see like a bit of a fresh crop of this is coming up in the next few years. Uh, I think for a while we were seeing like a ton of Viking games and, and stuff, and and now we're seeing like the cyberpunk wave. And I think that the cyberpunk wave is important because you. I think that there are a lot of people who are very uneasy about the state of of politics worldwide. And I think that yep. th- I think that a good setting does does two things. It is uh, aesthetically pleasing and fun to be in and explore, but also reminds you of how the world is perceived, if not from your own perspective, but, but from somebody else's. And like e- even just even just imposing a, even just implementing a character that reminds you of somebody that could exist should your world be this world. Right. And, and I I really want to give a shout out to, uh, horizon zero dawn because very few games do the, uh, the like prehistoric thing like monster hunter kind of does it. Um, they've got like this, this like prehistoric, like caveman motif going on a little bit where everything's like wood and made out of like giant animal bones and like, you know what I mean? Did you pick that up or, yeah. or is that just me? No, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's kind of monster hunter really wants to, I think that's another game that kind of plays with the eras because of course you also have giant guns in that game too, right? And airships and all this stuff. But mm-hmm. for the most part, it is supposed to give you that straight up prehistoric man searching for his food type of vibe. Yeah, for sure. You're eating these like these like comically large steaks and stuff, but um, but yeah. So Horizon Zero Dawn does the same thing, but they gave it this modernist, like this futuristic tinge. And I can't really talk about it without spoiling the game a whole lot. But 
it's modern. It's, 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 you know, these humans are relatable, even though they're living in this prehistoric tribal fashion, you, they, they did this, they did this beautiful job of recreating like, um, just, just like how different cultures come up independent of one another and what happens when they meet and what their perceptions of each other are upon contact. And they played with right. all these themes that even though we're talking like a hundred percent fantasy here, you, you get it and you say, Oh, this is probably what it was really like when human tribes like had first contact and then we're living with each other for a little bit and like what prejudices and, and pretenses existed in these, you know, rudimentary early cities and stuff like that. And I think that this is something that the cyberpunk genre can also give us, but opposite instead of back in time, it's like forward in time. You can see like how people would react under this, like, you know, under this like thumb of dystopia and, and how people would survive in these like criminal underbellies that are, that are always in these, these types of games and what people do to eke out a living and, I think that this like is very, is now in 2018 hitting closer to home than it ever might have in say the nineties or whenever cyberpunk was popular the last time around. So yeah, I would say, yeah, I was going to say two things to that. So first is that in general, there's actually a, quite a good bit of writing on sci-fi as a general genre, right? Because it is oft used as a, um, as a, as a way to talk about things that are going on in current society, right? Yeah. As you said, using the future to talk about the present. But I think, to your point, cyberpunk is definitely going to have another moment because we are find ourselves so much closer to those things that, you know, in any of the works, you think of the thing, the way those kind of, maybe not started, but definitely uh, headlined by, like, Ghost in the Shell's rise to prominence, right? Uh, and, and back then, those issues felt like, oh yeah, we are probably not terribly far off from these things, but they do feel like a long way away. But it's stuff that's interesting to think about, right? Yeah. And now suddenly, if you look at something like a ghost in the shell, uh, that's like, oh, that's like 10 years from now, we're going to be having that conversation. Like, it feels very, very present and real in a way it didn't before. And uh, I think there's going to, you're right to say that it's going to be, this next one is going to be really interesting and important because it's going to underline the fact that above all else, we find ourselves very unprepared uh, as a species to deal with the, the questions that are soon going to be in all of our faces. But I suppose that is what the power of a good setting is. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, and yeah, so, you know, this is, this is something that's always on the minds of developers. You know, what, what will this world mean and what will these characters mean inside of it? No matter how far off the rails they're whether they're going for like hardcore history, like a paradox, or if they're going for like, you know, high fantasy in space, like Bioware is the point remains the same. Right. And it is to have a good setting 
a world that people want to live in, one that is unique, but one that gives you a space in which you can be both expressive, but picture yourself in. Um, and it's a, it's a delicate balance. And, and, you know, when I think about stuff like this, I get, um, you know, my, my respect for the people who can make these worlds and, and design these characters and write this dialogue is, um, elevated for sure. Because, you know, once I come out and, and say all of these things that I want, I realize, oh my God, this is, this is probably really, really hard, you know? <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. So kudos to anybody who has ever or will ever make a game. Uh, For it's, real. It's hard and we are impossible to please. And I'm sorry. But... Um, <laughs> But yeah, and that I think is a is a, a good way to sign off. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, um, anyway, we uh, that's all the time that we have for uh, this episode. This is a good talk, but this is one of those things that you know, the conversation never ends. So, if you want to continue the conversation, reach out to us on the internet. Uh, we are on Twitter at Frog Snacks, on Instagram at Frog Snacks Podcast. We are on Apple Podcasts. You can rate, review, subscribe to the show there. And we've got our website, frogsnacks.net. We've got all of our episodes and written content there, which you can uh, comment on and stuff. So, um, so yeah, that's it. Uh, that's setting. That's episode 163. And we will uh, talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye, everybody. Peace.